evening, everyone. Welcome to this session of web-based learning from the members of the AO North America Hand Education Committee. We sincerely hope that you and your loved ones are managing to stay safe during these surreal times. My name is Chai Mudgal, and I'm very delighted to offer you this bi-weekly series that we have called Sage on Stage. You will get a chance to hear from sages who are hand surgeons who have made seminal contributions to the field that we so love and made us better surgeons. Their thought processes, their experiences, their missteps, and their technical pearls and pitfalls are what we are going to gain over the next hour. Our inaugural sage does not need any introduction. He is my friend, my colleague, my mentor over the last 30 years, and he will talk to us about a variety of issues. We will have questions being moderated by Jay Bridgman from Columbia, Missouri. Jesse, we are going to kick this off with what I suppose is your favorite topic, distal radius fractures, although I could be wrong. So here's my first question for you. How do you radiographically assess a fracture of the distal radius and when would you get a CT? Hey, well, thank you uh, and greetings to everyone. Uh, I just uh, want to give you a very brief history. And if you look over uh, to your left, that's me as a chief resident and 1979. And I'll tell you what I wish I knew then about distal radius and uh, elbow trauma is, first of all, how to read x-rays correctly and to recognize the difference between fracture patterns. Uh, some fractures of the distal radius are so different that the only thing they have in common is that it, part of it involves the uh, end of the radius. And we'll also touch on some specific uh, fracture patterns. Interestingly enough, the treatment at that time was just uh, do a closed reduction and follow the patient along. And that younger patients with intraarticular fractures would probably do well uh, because it's not a weight-bearing joint. And I think it's clear that um, times have changed. Uh, some years later, with a colleague in Switzerland, Diego Fernandez, we, we produce a book, uh, the two of us on this. And my chairman at that time, Henry Mencken, pointed out, why is there so much about so little? The book was 320 pages, only on distal radius fractures. And it's really just a small part of the body. It's not really life-threatening, but it's something that we don't often uh, do well with. And it's a little bit different now for many of us and many of you because things have evolved to such a degree that with an unstable fracture, uh, for want of any other way, we tend to try to get a volar plate on there. Um, but the real question that uh, Dr. Mudgalls addresses is how do you assess these and when do you get a CT scan? I think the real reason is to try to figure out which is an unstable pattern, which won't do well with a cast per se, if you're trying to preserve anatomy. And for difficult fractures, we know that uh, when they've got a good deal of instability patterns, they won't hold very well, even if you get, as illustrated here, a very nice initial reduction. So how do you assess this fracture? What are you looking at right now, those of you in the webinar, and 
what, what, what do you think are the problems here? Well, part of it and part of the assessment really is understanding the anatomy. And what we've come to realize is that the volar surface of the end of the radius is not square across by any means at the very terminal part. The radial styloid and the uh, lunate facet are both separately inferior to the long axis of the radius. And as a result, um, it's not very easy to judge the position of either one of these from a regular uh, X-ray, and particularly the lunate facet. If you look at this volar instability pattern, this is the so-called shear fracture, it's pretty easy to understand what's going on. But when we looked at a whole group of these patients, about 44 of these, we found that the vast majority of these, that volar fragment is not simply one fragment, but often has two. And sometimes the lunate component is very distal, which means if you tried just the standard volar plate here, it may not support that so-called teardrop uh, area. And we know that in this case, the carpus needs to be pushed back up uh, to reconstruct um, a normal alignment. If you have an axial pattern, not a shearing, but an axial pattern, look what happens. If you look at here, uh, it's very hard to tell how displaced that volar fragment is. But when you start to measure, and if you look at what's called the teardrop, you realize that that's a rotated volar lunate facet. The normal angle between the longitudinal axis and the teardrop should be somewhere about 70 degrees. And when you start looking at this, it's clear that that's a rotated uh, fragment. These are uh, nice illustrations from Bob Medoff in Hawaii. And so the, the axial instability pattern is very hard to tell from routine x-rays, standard x-rays, uh, and often a CT is very, very helpful, as well as with the volar instability pattern, because that too uh, may involve more than one volar fragment. So if I can leave you with something, it's that volar teardrop that's really hard to assess accurately without a CT scan. And we know that for many studies throughout the musculoskeletal system, scanning improves the alignment. So this was the x-ray I showed you, and it's probably not so easy to tell that there's a volar lunate facet that's displaced and how the lunate has pushed down this relatively small uh, facet. And um, we can do a 3D CT as well uh, to give a better uh, feeling and maybe more effectively treat that. So any discussion? Chai or anyone else? That was fantastic. Um, Jay, anything uh, in the pipeline there? No, no questions yet. Good, then let's keep going because we have, we have got this fountainhead of information here. Okay, so the next question you asked me was some t tips, particularly for the intermediate column. That's right. Uh, and we should talk about, uh, to know what we're talking about. And several investigators started to uh, try to figure out that the, the weight-bearing surfaces and the articular surfaces 
can be viewed in terms of uh, different components. Uh, and the, we'll look at that, and the column may be the radial column, intermediate column, and ulnar column, with the intermediate column being uh, the support of the lunate, per se. Well, when people looked at this and thought, gosh, that bone on the radial side is the strongest, so more likely than not, uh, there's a good deal of weight bearing that's going to be borne by the radial column. But if you look at this, realize that on the radial side, it's really the origin of some of the major volar capsular ligaments that come across the uh, carpus to prevent ulnar subluxation of the carpus. Where really the weight bearing is primar primarily is the central or intermediate column. And this shows you what happens in studies. We, we base so much of our information on non-physiologic studies. In several investigators looked at this trying to bear load on cadavers with a straight axial load. And it all suggested that more weight and force was born on the radial column. An absolutely unique experiment was done by Daniel Rickley in Switzerland where he somehow got his IRB to allow volunteers who were paid to have a light anesthesia. And then he inserted a force bearing film while they were still not completely paralyzed and asked them to move around their, their hand and wrist. And, and he got measurements all throughout in extension, flexion, deviations, and whatever. And he showed without question that more forces were born on the intermediate column than in the radial side or the ulnar side. Now that makes a lot of sense because the whole way the wrist works is to prevent the lunate, capitate lunate axis from going too far one way or another. The scaphoid flexes when you go into radial deviation, uh, extends when you go into ulnar deviation, but we don't want that lunate capitate axis to deviate too much and it's the support into the lunate facet is really where weight bearing has occurred. The radial column is a little bit more important for the insertion of the ligaments. We know that sometimes we'll see an avulsion of the radial uh, component associated with ulnar translation or scaphalunate ligament. Uh, rarely will we see a compressive injury, but we will see a compressive injury in the intermediate column. And what the intermediate column does besides bearing load is it's the articulation into the uh, ulnar head. So failure to get these reasonably close together uh, can affect a rotation as well. Well, what are some of the ways to do is analyze this with CT scans. Uh, CT scans will show you very effectively uh, not only the extent of deviation of the metaphysis, but really an understanding of the lunate facet. Sometimes we need to go and do it uh, small plates on both sides. Sometimes we can't do everything with a volar plate. 
If you get CT scans post-op, you would like to be able to see that it's not, it's not bad. We don't often get that CTs after surgery, but sometimes they're very helpful. And motion and rotation can be restored. You can't always do it for a volar plate, as I said. Here's another case. You can see that the, this teardrop, how rotated the, the lunate facet is, there's a central impaction, and this is the dorsal lunate facet. And if you look at this, seeing this sclerotic uh, bone area, that's the joint surface rotated. And so look at this lower picture here. That <clears throat> dorsal lunate component is rotated 180 degrees with the cartilage facing the elbow. Very hard to do these with just a volar plate and it's very mindful and to understand the dorsal anatomy and uh, through a, a small incision over the intermediate column, one can uh, push that back. In those cases though, it's far better to stabilize the volar side first. Uh, otherwise, when you try to support the dorsal lunate facet with a plate, uh, if you don't have something below, it, it may not work very well. And this is a, a good follow-up uh, in one year. The other alternative is this compression clamp that the DPS has. And what you can use it as once you've applied your plate and reduced the volar side, uh, it's a ball tip clamp with a dorsal uh, radiolucent component on the top. So with the volar plate in place, stabilized with either a clamp or uh, one or two screws, apply that ball tip clamp with the uh, radiolucent dorsal side that wraps around the ulna and will compress the lunate facet as seen here. Additionally, it helps restore the volar tilt to the radius. And this, that patient reduced, and here's the post-op CT scan. So that's some ideas about the intermediate column. So Dr. Jupiter, one of our okay. has yeah. a question, and that is, if a uh, distal radius has a non-displaced volar ulnar fragment, would you consider fixing that? Or is there a, a decision-making algorithm where you might stress that under fluoro to see if the carpus is unstable? How would you address it's a volar ulnar fragment that's non-displaced? Oh, and there's no other deformity, no other fracture in the end of the radius? Yes, uh, are those intrinsically unstable essentially? Like if someone has a non-displaced volar ulnar fragment, uh, is there some uh, uh, worry that it might displace later and so it should be you know, fixed uh, because of, of that possibility? Well, it, I guess it, if it's a higher energy trauma, uh, and there's a lot of soft tissue swelling, uh, it may be an indication to do surgery. Uh, if, if it's an older person, uh, you can afford to watch that. But that's a good reason to do a CT scan. Uh, Great, thank okay. you. So uh, the next question I posed to Dr. J was, is the monoblock volar locking plate being overused? Should future generations be well-versed in closed pinning as well? 
Well, why is it so good, the bowler plate? Uh, it's so good for most cases because it's uh, based upon the concept of angular stable fixation. Many of these fractures are uh, in osteopenic patients. And prior to uh, the angular stable locked fixation devices, uh, screws would loosen. We used to do, uh, try to do plates on some of these, but this is often what would happen because the screws were not sufficient to really prevent instability, prevent loss of fixation. And as a result, uh, we couldn't afford to stabilize effectively internally a lot of patients with this problem. That is patients who are older but active and uh, we can avoid the cast. What the fixed angle does is it really transmits the stress to the plate through these buttress pins or, or screws. So we're not fixing as you would normally with a screw. Why is it used so much? It's used because it works. It's a transformative technology and it's influenced the care of patients throughout. It's shearing fractures, as I mentioned, uh, don't, don't always need a uh, standard volar plate. They, they can be effectively done as long as you recognize that there may be uh, more than one fragment. Here's the follow-up. But the literature's conflicting because we started to see patients treat and put in uh, prospective studies. This is one from <coughs> um, Austria. And they looked randomized to uh, cast, closed reduction in cast or volar plate. Looked at all the outcome measures in physician and patient rated. Uh, patients with 65 years and older. And remember, this is in Austria, these surgeons are AO trained, do a lot of internal fixation. So if there was any bias, it would be in that. And they found no significant difference, pain or range of motion. Patients had a lower DAS score and wrist and function score early, but no significant difference later on. But the anatomy was better, but the complication rates were higher in the operative treatment. So their conclusions in this prospective randomized study was that there really wasn't a big difference between these two groups <clears throat> and that anatomically achieving anatomic reconstruction uh, didn't always convey a better result. So really the question then comes when you ask, are these plates overused? How perfect does an x-ray uh, have to be? Take it a step further. This study from England, where they looked at a long-term follow-up, averaged 38 years in young people, <coughs> excuse me, who, who were then followed um, 38 years later, all treated in casts. They all had malalignment. They all had Evidence, oh, many had evidence of osteoarthritis, but the DAS scores were not 
different than norm population norms and pain was not so much an issue. So they challenged, this study challenged uh, the idea that uh, you really had to get an anatomic reduction even in a young patient. And this was also confirmed in another study out of St. Louis and in a study uh, uh, out of London, Ontario, where they showed patients over the 65 seem to tolerate it pretty well. However, uh, you can look at it the other side and uh, say that in active patients who want uh, a better chance of motion and less pain, uh, there is evidence, although not the threshold of statistically significant to support the plate. We do know in several recent studies from Sweden that clearly patients who develop a substantial malunion, even if they're over 65, do have some problems. So in summary, is it overused? It may be, but it works. And if used correctly in the right circumstances with good analysis of the fracture pattern, it, it still remains a very viable uh, treatment. Great. Should there be uh, an emphasis on making sure that future generations are at least technically sound in pinning fractures of the selected fractures? Well, let's look at that. <laughs> okay, so uh, is it effective? Yes. Uh, Dr. Mudgall and I uh, have had uh, quite a long experience with this. And in, in good quality bone, with not a great deal of comminution, it's exceedingly effective. Uh, this was started a long time ago uh, uh, in, in Europe and then in the US with a variety of methods. The Kapanji technique described a way of using your K wires to help reduce the fracture and then uh, uh, pin across it. It didn't work as well with, uh, in osteoporotic patients. For years, we, even with two and three part articular fractures, uh, we can reduce the radial column and reduce the lunate facet. If you want to look at it arthroscopically, it may be very helpful. And then pin across. Protecting these pins either with a thumb spike, a cast, or an external fixator. Fixator left on for three or four weeks. And this patient had that three-part articular fracture. And this is at three months. He has very, very effective and good outcome. So yes, uh, people should be familiar with that. And then let's look at the data. Uh, this was a prospective randomized study, boulderplate versus conventional percutaneous me methods. Uh, using external fixation, which is you have to neutralize these pins in bad articular fractures. And they followed these uh, as uh, a, a randomized study looking at uh, patient and physician rated outcomes. And guess what? No difference at 12 weeks or one year <coughs> between the groups. The grip strength was better in, in uh, volar plate, x-rays better, but the overall function uh, was, was the same. 
and no difference in complications. So I guess there's enough evidence to say that that has worked in randomized prospective studies. And the latest to come off is from the UK, where they have a large study that uh, was prospective, looking at a variety of trauma centers, looking at K-wires and CAS or a locking plate. And I, I won't go through the data, but they found no significant difference with this. But K-wires are cheaper and quicker to perform. So yes, it's a good thing to do. We may be challenged, you know, we're gonna be challenged with uh, just about everything we do. And if <clears throat> we can get to do a, a beer block or something uh, or an outpatient in, an, in a procedure room, as opposed to having to have a more extensive uh, anesthesia and do percutaneous pins, it may be both economically uh, better and um, may allow us to do more in the face of uh, limited access uh, per se. So to answer your question, yes, we should all know how to do this. Great, thank you. Jay, any questions? Yes, yeah, so I have a few. So uh, in the older patient, they're, they're 65 or older, uh, when you're evaluating them uh, as far as their activity level, what are some guides that you use that would tell you this person is active and I'm leaning more towards a bowler uh, plate versus um, those that are not as active that you'd lean towards either non-operative treatment or pinning? Yeah, uh, I think I can answer that question by looking at uh, a uh, group of patients that we studied looking at an outcome tool that asked patients to what type of functional tasks do they do? What were they doing? Were they playing tennis, golf, et cetera, et cetera, uh, gardening, da, 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 da. And, and looked at that as a measure of uh, how much you would want to restore their anatomy. And I think that we should all do that. We don't look, and they, weren't being looked at chronologically, but physiologically. Yeah. And I think that's the answer that, that probably should, should, people should take home. Okay. And so um, shall we move on to the next uh, one, Jay? Uh, and then we'll come back to a question after this one. Okay. So uh, the question was, are we span plating too much? Yeah. Well, uh, I think uh, the interesting thing about span plating is the history. And Jim Beckton is an orthopedic surgeon in, uh, in Georgia. And he developed this plate many years ago. And uh, some surgeons, particularly one group in Detroit, did this for almost every displaced distal radius fracture. <clears throat> and they kept the plate on three to four months. And you say, my goodness, but I reviewed about 300 of their cases for, uh, the, as a discusser at the uh, Hand Society. And guess what? The patients did extremely well. And, and as a result, um, I think that it almost doesn't make sense in that we would want to get the wrist moving. 
but the downside may not be as bad as it is. But this is a development that was predicated before the volar plate, because what the volar plate did more than anything else is for independent, active, older people to remain independent, to avoid immobilization uh, of uh, nature, to avoid swelling, to mobilize the forearm. Those are all uh, things that were very commonly problematic after immobilization. And so I think that uh, where this has become uh, most useful is for very unstable fractures. Thinking about it as the concept of the pins, where you needed an external fixator to neutralize. If you look at these two investigators and their papers, <clears throat> the vast majority of these were done in patients who had very unstable situations, a good deal of soft tissue injury, often with volar components to the fracture that you actually need to plate the volar side first. Uh, this is a very unstable fracture in a young man. He had a decent but not perfect manipulative reduction and then stabilized with the uh, plate. Uh, and so in, especially in, in, in uh, situations of a good deal of soft tissue trauma, uh, it, it is effective. But if you want to do it as a main line, there's enough evidence to support that as your first go. But I don't, I don't think it's necessary with other, other methods. Question, Jay? Uh, one of the um, attendees asked about uh, what's a typical timeline that you like to start wrist range of motion for uh, the standard volar plating? Uh, well, it, it depends on uh, your, your patient, really. Uh, there's enough evidence for s several studies uh, that it probably doesn't make a difference if you move <clears throat> you know, within 10 days, if you move within three weeks, if you have the patient move even at four to six weeks. Patients who uh, are uncomfortable, uh, who have anxiety about moving, uh, there's, no, there's no rush to do that. What's, what is important is to minimize the swelling and, and maintain a good hand function. Uh, and even early on. It, everyone has a different way, but I don't think you need to use casts uh, in association with the plate. Great. Um, Dr. J, next question. What is the role of carpal tunnel release in distal radius fractures, and does it positively influence digital motion? When would you do it? Well, you know, if uh, these studies that show uh, pressure on the nerve, uh, if, if you uh, had ever reviewed the literature or had opportunity to see patients who were put in a cast or splint with the wrist flexed, bear in mind that that increases the uh, pressure in the, in the carpal tunnel substantially. And people have looked at that uh, and looked at patients having had pressure monitoring in uh, after they've had a, a reduction of their fracture. And um, 
those patients who had high pressures tended to not do as well. Uh, one thing to do is check to see the sensory, uh, either light touch or vibratory uh, test. Two-point discrimination is not really the first line of a sensory uh, testing. Um, it's not that common. In this study of, of over 500 patients, uh, only uh, uh, 23 had median nerve symptoms, but it can be problematic. Here's a study we did using a implantable cement. And when we found out uh, how patients had uh, uh, pain, uh, we found that a certain number of patients had carpal tunnel pain. And the answer is, if you have pain that's out of proportion to the injury or to the treatment, you should think of the median nerve. And uh, those patients with excessive pain, if it's unresolved, will likely have a higher chance of getting uh, complex regional pain syndrome. So my, my recommendation is if a patient has pain out of proportion, do all the normal things, take the cast off, get the wrist out in neutral, but um, avoid this kind of problem. If they still have the pain, go and release the median nerve. I did a study years ago, but I found that the median nerve compression unrelieved had a very strong negative effect on outcome. And early recognition is the single most important predictor of outcome. So if I see a patient who <clears throat> has pain out of proportion after their fracture has been reduced in the emergency room, has dense sensory loss, uh, I think they should have their median nerve released and their fracture fixed, of course. If a patient has comes to me uh, a week or two and has a severe pain, uh, I think it's the median nerve and it should be released. So have a low threshold for releasing the median nerve because the sequelae are very bad. Great. So moving on to the last part of the distal radius section. Okay. What does this mean? This is an interesting study out of Austria where they loaded wrists in uh, extension with an instrument machine slowly loading the, the uh, forearm and taking uh, cine pictures. And guess what? The patients who had uh, um, fractures that were extra articular tended to have all their carpal ligaments intact when they dissected. The patients who had intraarticular uh, fractures, the supposition, what they thought was when they explored them surgically, the, the cadavers, they found many had intercarpal ligament stretching or tearing. And this was uh, their study. Look how many problems they saw. Now you couldn't tell which was there before, but frankly, it was likely to occur because that's how you had asymmetric loading. And this has been shown on, on arthroscopy. We know that when you have these avulsion, like the uh, Schofer's fracture, you may have a scaphalunate ligament. 
And in those cases, if you have a complete drive-through, complete, then that may be uh, part of a transthyloid perilunate injury, uh, per se. If you have traction and you see a major asymmetry between the scaphoid and lunate, that may suggest attraction. That's called Galula's line uh, that can be disrupted. And we looked at that years ago radiologically and found that certainly there are situations that you see that. Now here's a sports injury. Here's the x-ray and the CT scan showed a wide gap. So how do we manage that? Well, you can do an arthroscopy you may see this, you may see that it's not necessarily completely ruptured, but some people will go ahead and treat it anyhow as, as done here. But what about this patient? Very much the same. One thing to always remember is x-ray the other side. So this is the uh, CT scan. It was fixed because this was the other side, almost exactly the same uh, scaphalunate gap. And this is at 36 weeks, 72 weeks with a good function. Here's another patient. Here's the x-ray. Same thing. So x-ray the other side uh, before you judge any, any other ways. And here's at uh, 45 weeks. Another patient Here's a CT, the x-ray, see the wide gap, fixed like that, uh, but look at that. That's a normal gap. Should this be treated? That's the real question. Probably not, probably not, because I don't think in a standard distal radius fracture that these are complete scaphalunate ligament ruptures. Uh, the, the ones that are complete ligament ruptures are usually a type of uh, perilunate injury. So it's uh, not very common and as a result. And the, the telling uh, thing about that was in this study by <clears throat> uh, Lindau's group in Sweden, where they looked at 51 consecutive patients uh, uh, and 32 of 51 had SL ligament tears and they followed those patients. None were treated surgically and guess what? They found that uh, the ones that were uh, not treated did just as well uh, as, uh, as uh, the opposite side, but none of those patients had this complete tear that I'm talking about. So if there's any question, x-ray the other side and consider arthroscopic evaluation. More likely than not, it'll be an incomplete lesion. Okay. That's awesome. So uh, we'll uh, move on to proximal ulna. Okay. <laughs> Should complex proximal ulna fractures be eponymously addressed anymore? Or are they oftentimes a continuum transitional lesion between various injuries? Okay. Well, this is what we're talking about. <clears throat> we're talking about this pattern of injury. Remember that uh, besides it involving the diaphysis to a certain degree of the ulna, 
uh, it involves the proximal component, which is both ligamentous and uh, articular. So bear in mind that some of these injuries will have combination of joint dissociation and, uh, and ligament injury. Remember too, when you're treating these, uh, that the ulna is not straight. It has a, a, a dorsal angulation of about seven degrees and a varus angulation as well. Just keep that in mind when you're treating those. Many years ago, Beto looking at pediatric uh, type fractures of the so-called Montegia realized that there are different patterns per se. And <clears throat> many years ago, I started seeing these patients and uh, they didn't really fit quite like Montegia lesions. And we'll, we'll look at those we, uh, per se. And just a point of history, Montegia missed the diagnoses of these uh, for th in the, in the index patient for three months. They had no x-rays then, of course. But what it is, is it's a fracture of the forearm with dislocation of the proximal radial in the joint. So it can be a variety of patterns. Skeletally can involve the ulna, radial head, and or proximal radius. And the joints can be both the radial ulnar, even the distal radial ulnar joint and the interosseous membrane. The posterior element can be somewhat predictable and uh, it may have a chip fracture in the anterior aspect of the radial head and a fracture at the coronoid or distal. And the fellow who best described this was Penrose in 1951, and this was his paper. And he basically tried to duplicate this fracture with cadavers just forcing a load on their wrist uh, with their elbow against a, uh, a solid board. And it, it took him a while until he made a little notch in the proximal ulna and then identified it. So is the fragment geometry predictable is what uh, Dr. Mudgall was questioning. Well, not all of these are fracture dislocations. Uh, and some involve the f more the forearm than the, than the elbow itself. But if you look at these, and the first study we did was uh, in 1991, looking at 13, this is what we saw, that it can involve the coronoid, but the most uh, difficult one may be where there's a triangular fragment of bone uh, in the uh, very proximal ulna. The reason is that unless you have a very stable fixation, there's, uh, and this is not brought into the reduction, it can cause instability and loosening of the plate. In the past, people tried to treat these with, with uh, casts or uh, IM rods, but it was never effective. And once you got down to here, you started to see a, an entirely different pattern where the end of the humerus implodes into the ulna and the radius and proximal ulna here go as one piece. Let me go back to that because that's important because that's not likely to have a ligamentous injury. Whereas this and this might have associated lateral collateral ligament uh, dysfunction. You don't wanna fix these along the side 
because of that fragment, it'll swivel on it. These still have a good deal of problems. And so well, let's look at this. Here's that triangular where the arrow is fragment and that needs to be brought into place. The radius has a very small chip fracture here. And here's what it looks like once you open it and uh, you've got a defect here. One of the uh, methods of treating these is to try to swing a wire around to bring that anterior component of the ulna uh, back into place, bring the components back and fix it with a longitudinal plate. If it has a very proximal uh, aspect to the ulna, bring the plate bent along the proximal uh, uh, lecranon. And so here's the, the, the schematic, the animation. So you see a, a part of a radial head fracture and we see a triangular component that's missing from this ulna and this is where it is. So unless we fix that adequately, there'll be a bending moment that this may go on to a non-union. Using this wire loop, it helps bring back that fragment. In this patient, there was a very substantial lateral instability, so a temporary external fixator is used just two or three weeks. And then here, here's the um, realignment. And uh, at, a, at a couple of years fixation with a good function. Now the subclassification that made it difficult, it's not a Montija. And it was described in the French literature at the turn of the 19th to 20th century. And, but this is from a Belgian book by Lambot in 1905. And so this is a different injury where the end of the humerus implodes into the proximal uh, ulna and uh, lecranon. But it's different than the Montegia because of definition, it's not dissociation between these two bones. This young man, <clears throat> high school student, that's his end of his humerus and this is all hematoma. And we looked at this group uh, and published and found a lot of problems. But here's the nice way to do this, is if you can bring back the very proximal ulna and implode uh, a, a smooth K wire or a Simon pin up into the end of the humerus and then a threaded pin distal to the comminuted fracture, then attach, <coughs> put the plate over that and attach a distractor. You can bring these components back with uh, a minimal dissection, putting a wire across. And here's the, the young boy, he's a high school student. And now this boy is actually an orthopedic surgeon, per se. Any, any questions about that? Great. Uh, that's fantastic. We are almost uh, ready to go on to the next. Uh, uh, Dr. J, do you want to get a drink of water? No, no, I'm okay. Okay. Um, okay, then we'll move on to distal humerus. Okay. What's the role of CT scan here? I think for articular fractures of the end of the humerus, it's especially very helpful. There are a variety of patterns and you know, and what's the advantage here with the 3D CT is you can eliminate the proximal radius and ulna. 
and be looking square on to the articular surface. And so fractures uh, like these can be very complex uh, per se and with multiple fragments. So the CT scan is very helpful. Here's another fracture. And the trochlea is disrupted in the medial and lateral columns. And a 3D CT can tell you, gosh, I've got a one column that's nearly intact, so I can fix the articular pieces onto that intact column. Uh, and that may help in the preoperative planning. So I think this is readily available now everywhere. And it's certainly in an older patient, uh, if there's any question of whether or not it's, it's uh, a good idea to do fixation, whether or not you want to do an uh, arthroplasty, then it's a, a good way to do that. The other thing is with a CT scan, you don't always have to get it that night or you don't always have to go to the OR that night because sometimes these cases can be a little difficult and uh, your OR night team may not know what to do, so to speak. So I think the CT scan is exceedingly helpful. So is a trans-electron approach the gold standard or should we try to spare the osteotomy and do parallel approaches? Right. Well, these are um, the ways that people have been talking about. <clears throat> and uh, there's a great deal of fear about the electronon osteotomy because you're introducing another fracture. And there uh, are um, complications as a result. However, um, some patterns, and that's where the CT comes in, uh, really need a better exposure uh, and the electronosteotomy is very helpful. The other advantage of not doing the electronosteotomy is with the electronon intact, you have a template to build uh, and check your reduction of your uh, trochlea. Well, there are some studies that suggested for very complex fractures, uh, this study compared triceps bearing with electronosteotomy, and suffice it to say, they found in complex fractures, especially older age patient, the osteotomy is a better idea. Uh, and so I think that it's a, a good idea, but what's the problem is uh, the following, as you see, non-union wires and screws. Mm -hmm. This is a study that was out of uh, uh, Edinburgh, and basically they looked at their experience, not necessarily with osteotomy, but with plate, versus tension band. And what they found was that there's more need for secondary surgery with tension band, but is primarily removing the wires because of contact problems. The problems they had were plate though were more profound with infection and, uh, and in an older patient with poor skin, that, that can be a real disaster. Uh, this is one of their non-unions with the plate. Very quickly show you how I do the electronon fixation because it's, it's, it can be done very predictably. If you make a little V uh, osteotomy and then two parallel wires go through the anterior cortex aiming toward the ulnar side, not radial side, and pull it back about a half a centimeter and then pass two, not one, but two thinner uh, tension wires, 22 or 24 gauge tension wires 
spread them apart and then do a nice uh, twist and then take this wire bender, which is a very nice clamp because you can bend it 90 and 90 degrees and then turn that around and impact it into the uh, end of the humerus, making sure that because you've pulled the wires out before you impacted them, that it won't be too far anterior to the cortex. You can't tell where it is in the cortex. That's why anterior cortex, that's why I aim to the radial side. There are proximal plates that are okay per se, but it's the technique of osteotomy. So don't feel afraid to do an osteotomy if you need that extra exposure is the plate per se. This is a study uh, looking at the literature uh, and looking at that question. But there is fair evidence to support a tricep splitting approach compared to the olecranosteotomy. So if you have a standard distal humerus fracture, certainly I think the tricep sparing uh, or splitting approach is, uh, is very effective. Great. Jay? Um, can you comment on your protocol for uh, preventing uh, heterotopic ossification for these types of fractures? Well, uh, you know that HO that's, uh, would complicate uh, outcome in the, the standard distal humerus fracture is very, very uncommon. Uh, it's usually seen with high energy trauma, uh, with soft tissue injury, or reoperations per se, or fractures associated with head trauma. Uh, there was an attempt at a prospective randomized study in North Carolina looking at giving uh, one arm uh, radiation and the other not. But they had to stop it because the radiation caused, they seem to see more non-unions. Mm -hmm. So generally speaking, uh, anti-inflammatory uh, indocin, all of those things really have no scientific basis. Good fixation and relatively careful handling of the soft tissue. It's, it's very uncommon for the standard uh, distal humerus fracture, if there is such a thing. <laughs> Great. Uh, Dr. Jay, do you advocate parallel plating or 90-90 plating, and what's the science? Well, uh, uh, you know, the anatomy of the distal humerus is such that this is the whole goal. The stability of the elbow comes uh, to a large degree from the relationship of the trochlea to the olecranon sulcus. So we'd want to get that restored as best as possible. Uh, whether or not you put plates along the sides or not has turned out to be not necessarily uh, so critical for most fracture patterns. It becomes a little more difficult when you start to have free-floating uh, patterns of, of the trochlea split in one or two pieces. So the anatomically shaped plates have been very effective. The difficulty, however, is when it doesn't fit. So be mindful of that. Uh, there are some fracture patterns, and I'll show you one, 
that uh, they're not necessarily easily to fit uh, for standard treatment. But the, stand, the approach now uh, with the anatomically shaped plates, particularly ones that have angular stability for osteoporotic patients, uh, have been uh, effective. And the data of, uh, again, loading cadavers suggests, well, uh, they seem to withstand load a little bit better. Uh, but there are very few studies that looked at one versus the other. So I think it's your clinical experience, but you should feel comfortable in uh, doing what you think will give you good stability. Remember that biomechanical testing to failure in these cadavers may not reflect what they're seeing clinically. It may be much more uh, loading than you see clinically. And the literature supports uh, either one. Are lock plates necessary? Probably not. Lock plates are too stiff in metaphyseal areas here. Uh, they may have a higher rate of non-union. Here's a very low, these are the very low distal fractures that can be treated with uh, angular stable fixation. Uh, this study showed that. But I'll tell you about three plates. The reason being is that some plates, these anatomically uh, shaped plates may not fit uh, some fractures. So plate contouring, you know, Dr. Mudgall mentioned, should we uh, make sure to know how to place percutaneous pins for distal radius? We should all know how to contour plates uh, because uh, sometimes, uh, you, you may need to use uh, standard plates and contour them like, like this. So here's a woman I saw who had 20 years before, she's 55, 20 years before had a distal humerus fracture and now comes in with a very low multi-fragmented fracture. Uh, another picture and notice this uh, avulsion of the olecranon tip. Uh, so this was some of the CT scans. And uh, I thought by using that avulsion, we could do a triceps splitting, uh, taking that piece off. But it turned out that uh, it didn't give enough exposure to this. So we did a more formal osteotomy. And um, that's where the piece came from. So here's what you're looking at. You're looking at two or three major fragments uh, uh, and of uh, the lateral column and uh, the central column. Once you get these together, it's a very low fracture. And so I think um, if you can contour or know how to contour some of these uh, standard plates, uh, you may be able to use them to wrap around the medial uh, side of the medial epicondyle and on the lateral side as well. And so three plates is sometimes very helpful. So here's the, the defect here, very limited purchase uh, here and, and here. And that's, that's what it looks like. And she, she did a, a pretty well. Great. Um, any pearls or pitfalls the audience should be aware of when you fix capitular fractures? Yeah, this is a especially uh, unique uh, fracture, and we've come to uh, learn a lot more about them. Uh, 
uh, <clears throat> one of the classifications was by the group in London, Ontario. And keep in mind, the 2B and 3B uh, with comminution are more difficult uh, fractures per se. Uh, operative treatment certainly will restore stability, but it's maybe difficult surgery and uh, end up with some dysfunction. Arthroplasty for young, uh, older people may be a, an option per se, but uh, it depends on their functional activities. And non-operative treatment, in some cases, you can do a closed reduction of a, just an isolated capitellum fracture. But if not, if it's a capitellar uh, chondral shear fracture, it may block motion. So the interesting thing is if you go through it through an extended lateral approach and open up and hinge open the elbow, you may be putting pressure on the ulnar nerve. So it's not a bad idea to just do a, a little release of the ulnar nerve. A straight dorsal incision will allow you to do this, but you can do uh, extended lateral and media, uh, small medial approach as well. And uh, sometimes if it's really difficult, an osteotomy of the lateral epicondyle will give you good exposure uh, per se. Now here's the advantage of the CT scan and the 3D CT scan. What we see here, taking away the radius and ulna, is we see the capitellum and trochlea extending almost completely uh, across the joint surface. But importantly, we see a fracture of the lateral epicondyle and an impaction of this uh, posterior wall. And that has to be uh, elevated. So the CT scan on these will give you a very good uh, idea of what you're dealing with. And uh, you can see how you, through an extended lateral approach, this is a way of fixating that lateral epicondyle, you can get all the way across the fracture, per se. And not, not a perfect uh, flexion, but a functional uh, result. So be careful about these. And um, if it's a patient with osteoporosis, and you want to fix it, uh, I wouldn't move the patient right away. I'd wait two or three weeks. Uh, remember that we used to think motion is critical in the elbow. Stability is critical. We can always do a reconstruction, a joint release later, but uh, not, uh, not if the thing falls apart. There are always complications here. And um, I think good preoperative planning 3D CT scan, a wide exposure, uh, and if necessary, release the lateral triceps posteriorly, elevate it so that you can hinge open the joint so you're looking straight in the front, will give you excellent exposure. Okay. Great. Jay? Yeah. So, uh, Dr. Jupiter, one of our uh, final thoughts about. Um, what is your approach to the ulnar nerve in fresh fractures as well as in patients who have uh, elbow stiffness? Uh, so for example, after a prior ORIF. And right. then does a, a d acute decompression influence the outcome of those patients? Right. Uh, a lot has been more recently written about 
the handling of the ulnar nerve. And it's, it's not quite uh, conclusive one way or the other, but uh, one of the better studies came from Toronto and the Canadian group, and they followed patients uh, up to a year after they had internal fixation of their elbow and found a lot of patients have sensory changes early, but the vast majority of patients improved. They were not transposing the nerve. For me, uh, I've always elevated the nerve about four to six centimeters proximally and four to six centimeters distally, freeing up the two heads of the flexocarpial narrus because that's where compression occurs when you get a, a stiff elbow or swelling. One thing to keep in mind is patients who have had elbow trauma, who were doing okay, or you operated, they were doing okay, and start to lose motion and slowly start to develop pain, four weeks, six weeks, that's the ulnar nerve. If there's no evidence of heterotopic bone or whatever. So study the hand. If they have weakness of the intrinsics, sensory changes, <clears throat> maybe get an EMG, but release the ulnar nerve. And that will abort the uh, evolution of uh, stiff elbow. But the handling of the ulnar nerve is, is individual. I th certainly, if it's in the way of plates, then it needs to be moved uh, anteriorly. But otherwise, um, there's probably not hard evidence that all the ulnar nerves need to be initially transposed, meaning moved out of their normal uh, path in, around the cubital tunnel. So that, that was fantastic. We, uh, in the interest of time, yeah. Dr. Jay, we'll just uh, have you give us uh, an answer to the last question before we uh, stop. Uh, what pearls can you offer the audience to prevent non-union and malunion in the hand? and technical tips to address these. Okay. Uh, there's the tip of the ulnar nerve. <laughs> okay. Well, malunion is particularly, it's not simply deformity, it affects, as you can imagine, the arc of motion uh, of the hand. What, how do you prevent it? Well, understand the adequacy of treatment. Uh, if you have a difficult uh, treatment or high energy trauma, we often uh, may see uh, one of the fractures not heal uh, in a normal alignment. And realize that some involve the joint, some are outside the joint, but the deformity is, um, can be varied and it's very hard to figure out per se. Let me just get to, uh, one thing is a spiral fracture in the finger. You can reduce it, but you may not be reducing the fracture. You may be twisting through the joint. And remember to buddy tape a rotated spiral fracture. will fool everyone for a couple of weeks, but once they take the buddy straps off, it may not fool the patient very long. So this is in good alignment, but once it's off, it's a rotated spiral fracture. 
Non-union is mostly from trauma, we say, or, or in surgical intervention. And uh, in a, inadequate K-wire in, in bad trauma uh, is probably the most common thing we see. This is a patient who had, you see how the K-wires cross in the fracture, keeping the uh, fracture fragments apart, or this is a failed internal fixation uh, per se. So those are the things that can lead to malunion and nonunion per se. So, uh, one more thing, the treatment is good preoperative planning, good preoperative planning and the use of K-wires. So if you put your K-wires perpendicular to the fracture, to the malunion proximally, and perpendicular to the fracture uh, malunion distally in two planes, you can use your K-wires to help realign uh, the bone after you've done the osteotomy. Okay. That was absolutely fabulous, Dr. Jupiter. Thank you so very much. I want to share with you what we're going to be doing next. We've got some very good sages coming up. Dr. Stern will join us in a couple of weeks, and then Dr. Shekhar. Finally, Dr. Jay, on behalf of the North America Hand Education Committee, thank you so very much. It was spectacular. A shout out to Angel, who has run our AV, and to the rest of the AO North America team. Jay Bridgman, thank you. Thank you. Good night, everyone. It was fantastic.